BRL, how are we doing? We're doing well? Okay, we got some enthusiasm over here. I love that. Appreciate that. Uh, my name's Kelly. I'm the campus pastor at the Riverside Campus. We are, uh, I think this is week five, and uh, things are going really great there. Just appreciate your support in all of that. Uh, all of you Riversiders, if you're watching online, why aren't you at church right now? Just kidding, looking forward to being with you guys again next week. Uh, welcome to week two of our series, God and Sexuality. Um, if you didn't know that that's what was happening, I'm sorry that you're finding that out right now. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of the topic of our day, isn't it? Um, so if you're thinking, wow, that's a little uncomfortable talking about sex in church, uh, totally get that. I think you're normal to feel that way. Um, this might set you at ease. Just imagine standing here in front of all of you talking about sex in church knowing that your mom's listening. Okay, it's like all my adolescent fears come together in the same place at the same time. So uh, we'll just, we'll be uncomfortable together. Um, but the, the conversation that we're gonna have today is just, is just so, so important. Today we are going to both graciously and honestly dive into the topic of same-sex relationships and sexuality. And uh, I know that puts a, a lot of us a little bit on edge because there's some real cultural tension around this particular issue. Um, but I think the reality is that this is the conversation of our day, or certainly one of the defining conversations of our day, and so we just can't, we just can't hide from it. But because it's a sensitive issue, uh, I would love for us to just agree to a few ground rules for, uh, for our time here together, same ones as last week. Um, the first one is just be advised. This is a PG-13 series, and so parents, um, just trust your discretion on that, uh, I don't know if it's helpful to you to know this or not, but my teenagers are hearing this at Riverside this morning, and uh, I'm good with that, so. Uh, but totally trust your discretion on that, parents. The second one is, uh, man, I love that we have a talk back church. You know, I love those amens and the deacon hums. You know the deacon hum, right? Mmm, love that. <laughs> I'm gonna ask you to do me a favor, though, uh, and just bottle those up. Like, don't, don't, don't not do it, save them up for the next series, and then we'll really get after it. Because uh, today we just wanna be cautious and just understand like we might all be at different places and I don't wanna accidentally interrupt someone else's journey and what God's trying to do in their life. The third one is, uh, if you have feedback, questions, criticisms, those kinds of things, we're just asking you to hang on to those until we get to the end of the series. This is week two of four. Uh, some of those may be addressed along the way. Uh, last week, maybe some of them were addressed. If you didn't get a chance to be here last week, be sure and jump online. Number four, the last one, uh, please participate in the entire series. This is a really big issue. We could spend months talking about this conversation. Uh, it turns out that sexuality is kind of a big deal to humans. Uh, but we're gonna try and string together four, four messages into one coherent message. And I just wanna throw maybe, uh, maybe just like a bonus couple of things that we could agree on. Um, on this particular issue, I, I would just ask you, can we just keep in mind that yes, we're talking about an issue but really we're talking about people having a human experience and it may look totally different than my experience or your experience, wherever you're at, but, but can we just agree not to objectify each other and to just allow each other to take the journey and allow God to work uh, in each of our lives? And lastly, I just, wanna, I just wanna make a distinction between a couple of terms um, in this area. I just wanna distinguish between being gay and feeling same-sex attraction. Because the action and the temptation to act are, are not the same thing. And so the Bible is, is clear that Jesus came and he was a human and he understood what temptation was like, but yet he did not sin. And so I just wanna draw a distinction between those two things to make sure we don't have any confusion 
as, uh, as we go along. Okay, so let's do this. I am so thankful for the Bible. I'm just so thankful that God gave us his word in this form. Through the Bible, we can know what God is like. We can know who he is. We can know what his standard is. We can know what he says about us, how God feels about us. We can know everything that we need to know about God through his word, his self-disclosure. In 2 Timothy chapter three, this is what the Bible actually says about itself. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. God uses his word to teach us what is true. He uses it to steer us away from danger and to steer us away from what is not true. He uses it to correct us when we're wrong and to equip us and show us how to do what is right. God's word equips us for every good work. This is, this is what the Bible is intended to do. God intended the Bible to reveal to us who he is, to show us who we are, and to guide us in his plans for our lives. The Bible is an instrument for good in the world, but sometimes it gets used in ways that it wasn't intended. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that before. Now, sometimes people will take the Bible and use it for in ways that God didn't intend. So I wanna play this audio clip for you. It's a guy who is running late for work, he's calling to leave a voicemail with one of his colleagues, and you'll, you'll hear what happens right in front of him, but, but just notice, this is a great example of how not to use the Bible. Hey Mark, excuse me, I'm on my way to 3768. Kinda got hung up, it's raining out here, I'm on my way into Dallas. Uh, Jerry's probably gonna be calling you to find out uh, where I'm at if he can't get a hold of me, I'm sure. So, uh, thought, whoa, whoa. Man, I just had a wreck right in front of me. This guy ran a red light and hit, uh, hit four old ladies in, a, in an Impala. Oh, now this guy's getting out of his car. He's got a, he got a white shirt on with a tie and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He's throwing his hands up in the air like, he, like, like it was their fault. He's going over to their window. Oh, man, she, I think she sprayed him with pepper spray, man. He's holding his, he's holding his face and he's on his knees. She's getting out. She's beating him with an umbrella. <laughs> the other women are getting out, too. <laughs> ah, there's one woman with a little black person. She's tomahawking him, man. She looks, she looks like a Sunbelt 20, 20 horsepower jackhammer. Hardback NVI version. <laughs> you know, I, I love the Bible. 
It has shaped my life. And I know that millions of people all over the world would, would agree and say the same thing. Uh, my Bible and I have literally been all over the world together. And it has transformed and changed and impacted every single area of my life. But at times, we use it a little bit more like the NVI 6000. <laughs> Ever been on the receiving end of this? Sometimes we use it against each other. If you've been around church for a long time, maybe you've, you've seen that happen. Like, oh, your church believes in the doctrine of what? Let's see about that. And we, we use it on each other. And that's, it's usually petty, it's always sad, but at least we can know, hey, someday when we're in heaven, like Jesus is gonna work out all those secondary issues. Maybe when we get there, we won't even care anymore. Jesus is gonna work that out. But what really is grievous to me, like what legitimately makes me sad and heartbroken is is when we turn it on people who are struggling to find faith. People who don't yet know who God is. They don't yet know what he says about them. People who are searching for guidance, searching for God, searching for God's plan in their life, and we say things like, you do what? You know what the Bible says about that? It says you go to hell. You, you don't believe what we believe? Well, you're just not welcome here. Sometimes we weaponize the Bible in ways that it wasn't meant to be weaponized. And the truth for us is Christ, as followers of Christ, the, the, the Christ followers in the room, is that how we handle the Bible has really significant implications for other people. John and I were just talking this morning right before we came out about how people remember the way you make them feel, they don't just remember what you say. And the way we handle the Bible has implications for that. Now, according to Ephesians chapter six, the Bible is a weapon. It is meant to be weaponized against the spirit of evil, not against people. Might sound familiar to you, we wrestle against, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. That's what the Bible is intended to be used against. And so I would just say to the, the followers of Jesus in the room, it's essential that we handle God's word the way God's word wants to be handled. We reveal it to the world the way it wants to be revealed. Now, thankfully, God in his word actually shows us exactly how he wants it to be represented to the world. Last week, Pastor Dan took us to what really is the central passage for this entire series, John chapter one, verse 14. This is what it says. The word became flesh, that's, that's Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. He lived among us and walked our experience. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God Almighty saw us with all of our messiness, including our sexual brokenness, and he sent his son to come and walk in our shoes, to live our experience. He sent his son to come and meet us in our weakness and to pay our bill. That's grace. I couldn't be more thankful for it. He also sent his son to come into the world to confront the reality of our waywardness to confront the reality of my rebellion and the reality of sin's deception in my life, that's the truth that goes along with the grace. But as Pastor Dan said last week, we all kind of have a tendency to sort of veer off toward one or the other. You know, it's like Jesus made this path right down the middle, but there's a ditch on both sides and we all kind of lean one way or the other. I know I do. Uh, the way this plays out in my life, uh, I'm a golfer. Uh, anybody here play golf? I know that's shocking that the pastor plays golf and it's Hard to believe, I know. Uh, but I have this funny experience that happens periodically to me. You don't have to be a golfer to appreciate this. So 
Uh, it's pretty normal if you play golf to get paired up with people that you don't know, because you know there's four people to play at a time, and if you go by yourself, you're gonna play with some other people. And uh, most of them are great, most of them are wonderful, but sometimes you get paired up with you know, somebody who's just like, uh, they're either short-tempered, or they just have a really foul mouth, or they tell all these really off-course, you know, off-course, off-color uh, jokes, that kind of thing, right? So if you're a golfer, you probably had that experience. Well, here's what happens when, that, when you're the pastor who golfs and you get paired up with that guy. You know, you're playing, and he's doing his thing, and you're sort of smiling along, and you get to about the third, fourth hole, you know, you're like 45 minutes to an hour into this thing, and invariably the question comes up, so Kelly, what do you do for a living? And this is where it gets fun. This is where I say, I'm a pastor. And they respond with something like, oh. <laughs> I, I go to the, that church, I forget what it's called, you know the big one down over there by the such and such near the thing? And of course it's immediately obvious that like, okay, well, um, you probably don't, but it's not sticking very well, so you should keep doing it if you do. And, and that's all, it's all good. There's like this inconsistency between that and what they've been doing for the last hour, right? And so maybe what I, what I should say, if I was full of grace and truth, maybe what I should say is something like, well, you know, since you're a Christian, um, I should probably just be honest with you and, and just, just let you know, like, the last hour isn't really consistent with that. You know, like maybe I should lovingly try to point that out, be full of grace and truth, but that's not what I say. What do I say? I say something like, it's all good. Man, I'm so sorry about that joke. I didn't know you're a pastor. That's, it's all good. Don't worry about it. That's, that's what I say. I say it's all good because I'm a grace guy. Right? That's, that's the direction that I lean. But I really haven't done that person any favors, right? Some of you are not grace guys and gals. Some of you are truth folks. And, and you know, we all kind of veer in one direction or the other. The truth folks, you know, when you hear something that's like, it's wrong, you just can't rest until you point you know, call attention to the fact that it was, it's wrong, right? Like if something is inconsistent with God's word, you, you just, you have to say so. Sometimes we're the people who, when we see something unfair or uncorrect, we just can't help but tell, tell the people involved, you're doing it wrong. We just, we have to tell them, you're, you're doing it wrong. I had a, such a crazy example of this. This is like, remember that movie Groundhog's Day where Bill Murray has like the same day over and over and over again? This is what happened to me when I was a youth pastor. It's been uh, way too many years than I'd like to say. Uh, there was this young man in our youth group, he was about 15 years old, who just had a, such a tragic, tragic childhood. Just, just some really wild stuff. But God got a hold of his life and just like, just turned him around. I mean, he was headed for some bad places and uh, God just turned his life around. And so he just went out and started telling everybody. And people could see how drastically his life had changed. So all of a sudden, all these kids from crazy, all these teenagers from just the craziest background started like flocking to our church. And eventually, this group of teenagers was about the size as the entire adult congregation in the church. So Sunday mornings became like quite a social experiment for us. And most of the adults in the church did exactly what you would do. Yeah, they're kind of loud, kind of messy. It smells a little different here, but, but this is awesome. Look what God's doing in their life. Look at all these teenagers coming to worship God together. Most of the people, that's where they were at, but there was this one guy that I had the same conversation with almost every single Sunday. He just, based on where he had been, based on his upbringing and his experience, he just couldn't handle it. He just couldn't handle what he felt like was disrespect. He just, he, he couldn't handle it, and, and he was 
always telling them, no matter what they were doing, you're doing it wrong. You're, you're too loud, you're too fast, you're too messy, you're not dressed appropriately, you're doing it wrong. And his inability to be gracious with them eliminated his opportunity to speak into their, their lives. Most of us are gonna go in one direction or the other. But think about this now. God himself looked down at the world with all the mess going on. And he didn't go one direction or the other. What he did was he stepped into our shoes. He lived our experience completely full of grace and completely full of truth. Both held in perfect tension in the person of Jesus. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, Kelly, that's, that's great. That's the exact same message Dan preached last week. Thank you. Uh, I, I haven't moved the ball down the field really at all, but, but here's where I'm going with that. The question of how we view same-sex relationships in our modern cultural age, how we view homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and the like, it really comes down to what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about this? So let me just ask you a question. Wherever you're at, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not a follower of Jesus, is the Bible your authority? I mean, is the Bible really authoritative in your life? So if you're a Christian, I think you probably know, like, the right answer is yes, right? Like, that's, that's what we're supposed to say. Uh, and, and that's true, or at least it should be. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, is there really any reason for someone who's not a follower of Jesus to hold the Bible as their authority? Because the Bible is about Jesus. So if you don't believe that he is who he says he is, why would this be an authority to you? So Christian, let me, let me ask you this. Let me, let me just point this out, I guess. If a person is not a follower of Jesus, there's no reason for the Bible to be their authority. So, so when we're having conversations about this particular issue with someone outside of faith in Christ, the first thing we should do is point them to Jesus. Because if I'm not a follower of Jesus, if I don't know Jesus, this is just an old book. The first thing we should point people toward is always to Jesus. But today, I'm here mostly speaking to the church. If Jesus is the Lord of my life, this should be my authority. We know that for a bunch of reasons. One, because Jesus treated the Old Testament as an authority. And then in the New Testament, what do we see? The New Testament is about Jesus. So here, for example, maybe a verse you've probably heard before, Psalm 119, 105. In the Old Testament, it says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. That's the Old Testament telling us that the Bible is our authoritative guide. What about in the New Testament? There's a whole bunch of them. How about James 1:22? James is the brother of Jesus. How about that for a weird childhood? What does James say? He says, don't just listen to God's word, do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. That's James telling us the Bible is your authority. There's a whole bunch of different verses that we could turn to, those are just a few. So with all grace and full truth, if we just look at the Bible and see what it says on this issue, and we don't read any kind of an agenda into it, we just read it plain and simple with integrity, what does it say about the issues at hand? There's several places we could turn to, Old Testament and New Testament. I've chosen the book of Romans, uh, partly because of the trajectory that we'll see, but also because it addresses both men and women on this issue. And in, in the book of Romans, the beginning of the book, Paul is speaking about the natural human tendency to turn away from God 
and pursue our own, our own desires instead of choosing his plan. So let's pick it up in Romans chapter one, verse 25. Paul says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Anybody ever chosen created things over God? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll just put mine up. I have, I have loved things more than the one who created them. I have done that at times in my life. I have loved other people, desired other things more than I have loved and desired God. I'm, I'm guilty of that. I suspect that you are as well. Verse 26, that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserve. Okay, that's heavy stuff. I'm speaking to the church. Paul wrote this letter to the church, to the Christ followers in the room. If you just read it, if you just read the words on the page without, without any agenda or any modern sensibilities over the top, what, what does it say to you? What's the truth of what it says? Some people say that the Bible is silent on the issue. Some people say that you know, the New Testament is actually okay with homosexuality because Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. Some people will say that the Romans lived in a totally different cultural construct, so it doesn't really apply to us. But what I'm asking is, if you just read it, what does it say? If, if we just treat it with integrity, it says, don't go there. It says, that lifestyle's out of bounds. It's, it's incongruent with God's design. Of course, the Bible has a word for, uh, Bible has a, a phrase for when we choose to live outside of God's design. It's a word that is kind of ugly, it doesn't feel very good, the word is sin. That's, how, that's what the Bible says. Now, last week, Pastor Dan talked about God's design for sexuality. He spoke from Genesis chapter two at the very beginning, confirmed by Jesus in Mark chapter 10. God's design for sexual activity is within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. That's the context that God has designed. Now that is VRL's official position. It has always been, none of that has changed, none of that is new. Last week, Pastor Dan talked about the biblical term that is translated into English as sexual immorality. It's a term that the original audience would have understood as the Levitical definition found in Leviticus chapter 18, which includes mostly behaviors of heterosexual people, but also includes homosexual behavior. And if we read Romans 1, which we just did, or other chapters like it, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Jude chapter 1, shout out to Jude, he doesn't get much airplay. We read places like 1 Timothy or several others. If we just read them with integrity, there's, there's no endorsement or anything close to implying that a Christ follower is okay to live a homosexual lifestyle. We got that out of the way. That was honestly hard for me to say, but that's the truth of the scripture that's in front of us. Now, what I would say in addition to that is, I understand that life is more complicated than just a list of do's and don'ts. Life is always more complicated than just a list of do's and don'ts. If it was just about do's and don'ts, the Israelites in the Old Testament would have just nailed it. They'd have done the do's and not done the don'ts and everything would have been fine. But life is way more complicated than that. And so if you're here and you're gay, or you're here and you're struggling with same-sex attraction or living with same-sex attraction, I wanna say to you that I am sorry, very, if I or anyone else 
has ever minimized your experience to a list of do's and don'ts as if it wasn't more complicated than that because I understand that it is. I wanna say that I'm sorry if I or someone else has ever shoved you into the category of wrong. Just, you're just wrong. Without seeing the person, without knowing your story and valuing you for who you are, I'm sorry for that. And I confess that I have used this passage and others like it with heavy truth and not nearly enough grace. And I'm sorry. I hope you'll forgive me for that. I love this word. And I believe that life is found here, that, that the true deepest form of life is found right here. The New Testament was written mostly in a dialect of Greek known as Koine, it was sort of a, like the common language of the streets. In Koine Greek, there are three words that we translate into English as life. One of them you might recognize is the word bios. It means physical life. It's where we get the word biology or biological. Another word is the word zoe. Zoe means life to the full. The deepest, most satisfying form of life. This is the term that Jesus uses in John chapter 10, verse 10. This is what he said. He said, the thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Rich and satisfying life, to give them zoe. And so the choice before us when we wrestle with the issues usually has little to do with the various issues themselves or even the behaviors that come along with them. The choice before us has everything to do with who Jesus is in our lives. If you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if you, if you don't believe that Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross to pay for your sins, then there's no reason for you to believe that his way is better. He's, he's, just, he's just a guy. If he's just a historical figure or a good man, then there's no logical reason for you to do what his word says instead of doing what you want to do. And if that's where you're at, then I just, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you, that he does want to lead you to a full life, but he loves you even if you choose not to believe in him. It doesn't minimize your value. The relationship with him will be fractured, but it doesn't minimize your value. But on the other hand, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you do believe that he is the son of God who died on the cross and paid for your sins so that you could be reconciled to God, if you do believe that, then Jesus is calling you to trust that his way is better. Faith in Jesus is about believing that his way leads to Zoe life. His way leads to the deepest, richest, most satisfying form of life. Now, people who wield the Bible like a weapon Love those verses that we just read in Romans because they, they shout out, you're doing it wrong. But Paul's letter to the church at Rome actually has a lot more to say. So I think in order for us to be honest with ourselves, we gotta keep reading for a few more verses. Verse 28, this is what he says. He says, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die and yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, 
They discourage others who do them too. That's a pretty good list of things that God finds unacceptable. And you know who's on that list? More than once. A whole bunch of different times. Anybody ever been greedy? Anybody ever been hateful or envious? Anybody ever been deceptive about anything? Anybody ever been a gossip? You ever said disparaging things about another person? Me too, guilty. But let's read on. Chapter two, verse one. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. You have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself, for you who judge others do the very same things. Welcome to Valley Real Life. Hope that just a little pick-me-up right there. Here's the thing about these verses, okay? Paul is writing to the church. He's calling attention to this one particular behavior, but then he calls out all of these other behaviors. And he says, church, Christian, we're just as guilty. We need a savior just as bad as anybody else. But then comes one of the most well-known verses of the Bible. He sums all of that up in Romans 3.23. He says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And this is the truth. This is the reality of our situation. We look at that list and we can all find ourselves on that list multiple times. That's the truth. But here comes the grace in the next verse. 324, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. This is why the gospel is good news. Because Jesus paid the bill for everyone who wants to receive forgiveness. So how does that work? Let's read the next two verses. Verse 25, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past because he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time through Jesus. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just and makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. We receive forgiveness of our sins when we just believe in Jesus. That seems too easy, doesn't it? I mean, depending on where you're at on that list, it kind of feels like I should have to work for it. Feels like I, I should have to do something else, but, but that's not what it says. It, it almost seems unfair, and if it is, like, thank God. Aren't you, aren't you glad that God is unfair in that regard? But here's the thing we have to wrestle with. If I put my faith in Jesus, okay, if I believe that Jesus is God incarnate, then the only logical thing for me to do is to turn from my way and go his way, trusting that his way will ultimately be better. I mean, if I believe that Jesus is actually God come to earth, then the only logical thing for me to do is to know that his way is better. So my question for you is really a pretty simple one. Wherever you're at in life, whether you're at in faith, wherever you're at on your journey, will you take a next step in Jesus' direction? So if you're a follower of Christ, that might look like this. Will you seek to respond with grace and truth instead of just one or the other? If you're not a follower of Jesus, would you consider saying yes to him today? If your experience has taught you that God is angry and harsh, 
Would you consider the possibility that he's actually loving and gracious? Will you take a step in Jesus' direction? Wherever you're at, would you believe, would you be willing to believe that Jesus has ended the moral scorekeeping? God is not keeping, he's not keeping score. Jesus has satisfied the bill. He just wants to begin a relationship with you. Would you be willing to take him at his word that his way is better? So if you're a follower of Jesus, you might be saying to yourself, okay, yes, but what should I do? What should I do with this? Let's just go back to Romans one last time. Romans chapter three, verse eight. This is the instruction that Paul gives us. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are all summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, and so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. What should I do? With all these issues, things that I disagree with, what should I do? How, how should I respond to the people? The answer is, love your neighbor. I should love my neighbor. You know the story of the Good Samaritan? You know, the question was raised, well then, who is my neighbor? And the answer is, whoever is around you. What should I do? I should love my neighbor. What if... What if my neighbor voted differently than me? I should love my neighbor. What if my neighbor lives a totally different lifestyle than I do? What if my neighbor is hostile toward my lifestyle? Or what if they're hostile toward the things that I believe? I should love my neighbor. Because love does no wrong to others, and so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. What does God want from you? To love your neighbor. So I just wanna throw just a couple of things at you really quickly because um, I understand that when we talk about something like this, like we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks dialoguing about uh, some of these issues and not really ever like totally get our, our hands around it. But uh, because this is a very real issue and even like generationally, um, attitudes are a little bit different. I had a conversation this week um, in preparation because I wanted to just be able to just throw out a few things that might be helpful to some of you in having these conversations. Uh, I, have a, uh, I have a good, good friend who is one of the most brilliant and gracious people that I know. Uh, he's a follower of Jesus, and he also has an adult child who's gay. And so the question was raised, how should I respond to someone around me, whether it be a child, a friend, or a relative, who, who comes out to me or says that they're uh, experiencing same-sex attraction? What are like the practical ways that I should respond to them. And so I had a lengthy conversation, an interview type conversation with him. And uh, these are just five things that came out of our conversation that um, I, think, I think you should probably put in the toolbox and just be prepared with. It might be helpful to you. The first recommendation was seek to understand. It's very difficult to make a good judgment about anything without understanding it. And consider the fact that when Jesus, when God looked down at our situation, he stepped into our experience to understand it fully. So seek to understand. The second recommendation is create an environment and relationship where it's okay to bring everything into the light. Understand that it's, it's taken some courage for someone to come to you with an issue like this. And so whatever they say, resist the urge to respond out of your own fear and anxiety because then that will steer the conversation and that's, 
that's not a direction that you wanna go. Third recommendation was be prepared to go the distance. If someone that you know well comes to you with a conversation like this, it's not the end of their journey. It's actually the start of your journey together. They have a whole life out in front of them and you wanna make sure that you're still a part of that. So be prepared to go the distance with them. It's not the end of their journey. The fourth one is consider it a blessing that they came to you. This one, for those of us who, uh, who are in the church, this is a really big deal. Um, most people, if they have a background in the church, if they're dealing with this issue, would be absolutely terrified to talk to someone in their family about it because they're aware that bringing this into the light could cause isolation and shame on their family. And so, so most of them are, are never gonna have that discussion. So consider it a blessing that they actually came to you and want you to be the person they trust. The last one, most importantly, remember that it's God who transforms people. We don't transform people's hearts. Our job is to trust him and to act accordingly. So remember that God is the one who instigates change in people's lives. So after all of that said, and there's so much more conversation that we can have, but here's just the bottom line. This is really just, this is what I just want everyone to know, that there's a good God. There's a good God who loves you, who sees you, who sees your journey. He loves, in fact, the whole world so much that he stepped into our humanity and he received the punishment that our sin deserves when he took it on the cross. I want you to know that there's a good God who wants to lead you to the fullest, most satisfying life possible, both now in this life and he wants to spend eternity with you. I want you to know that there's a good God who loves you and he knows we're all broken, he knows we all fall short, but he's made a way for every one of us to come into relationship with him and he's not afraid of your mess, even if other people are. Will you say yes to Jesus? Will you say yes to him as God in the flesh who came full of grace and truth to make it possible for you wherever you are, to begin a relationship with him. I'd love to pray together before we shut down, and if you wanna say yes to Jesus, you can take that step right now, right where you are. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much that when you look at us and you see our frailty and you see our mistakes and you see our brokenness and you see the ways that we turn away from you and do what we wanna do instead, and your response was, to send your son to die for us. You could have started over, you could have just done away with us, but you wanted us. So God, I pray that today the magnitude of your love would be felt in each one of us. And for the person who needs to begin that relationship today, Lord, we just come to you and very simply say, I acknowledge that I have sin in my life. I acknowledge that I've chosen my way over your way. God, will you forgive me? Thank you that Jesus paid the bill for all of that sin. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, we come to you today, I pray that you would make us truthful and gracious as we wrestle with this um, strange and unusual time to be a human. God, I pray that you would be glorified in the way that we respond to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.